Chapter Three of the Afghan Wars, eighteen thirty nine to eighteen forty two, and eighteen seventy eight to eighteen eighty. Part One: The First Afghan War, by Archibald Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Three: The First Year of Occupation. Sir John Key, in his picturesque if diffuse history of the First Afghan War, lays it down that in seating Shah Suja on the Kabul throne, quote, the British government had done all that it had undertaken to do, unquote. and Durand argues that, having accomplished this, quote, the British army could have then been withdrawn with the honour and fame of entire success. Unquote. The facts apparently do not justify the reasoning of either writer. In the similar manifesto, in which Lord Auckland embodied the rationale of his policy, he expressed the confident hope, quote, that the Shah will be speedily replaced on his throne by his own subjects and adherents, and when once he shall be received in power, and the independence and integrity of Afghanistan established, the British army will be withdrawn, unquote. The Shah had indeed been restored to his throne, but by British bayonets, not by his own subjects and adherents. It could not seriously be maintained that he was secure in power, or that the independence and integrity of Afghanistan were established when British troops were holding Kandahar, Gunzi, and Kabul, the only three positions where the Shah was nominally paramount, when the fugitive Dost was still within its borders, when intrigue and disaffection were seething in every valley and on every hillside and when the Principality of Herat maintained a contemptuous independence. Macnaughton might avow himself convinced of the popularity of the Shah, and believe, or strive to believe, that the Afghans had received the puppet king, quote, with feelings nearly amounting to adoration, unquote. But he did not venture to support the conviction he avowed by advocating that the Shah should be abandoned to his adoring subjects. Lord Auckland's policy was gravely and radically erroneous, but it had a definite object, and that object certainly was not a futile march to Kabul and back, dropping incidentally by the wayside the aspirant to a throne who he had himself put forward, and leaving him to take his chance among a truculent and adverse population. Thus early, in all probability, Lord Auckland was disillusioned of the expectation that the effective restoration of Shah Sujah would be of light and easy accomplishment. But at least he could not afford to have the enterprise a coup manque, when as yet it was little beyond its inception. The cost of the expedition was already, however, a strain, and the troops engaged in it were needed in India. Lord Auckland intimated to Macnaughton his expectation that a strong brigade would suffice to hold Afghanistan in conjunction with the Shah's contingent, and his desire that the rest of the army of the Indus should at once return to India. Macnaughton, on the other hand, in spite of his avowal of the Shah's popularity, was anxious to retain in Afghanistan a large body of troops. He meditated strange enterprises and proposed that Keane should support his project of sending a force toward Bukhara to give check to a Russian column which Pottinger at Herat had heard was assembling at Orenburg, with Kiva for its objective. Keane derided the proposal, and Macnaughton reluctantly abandoned it, 
but he demanded of Lord Auckland, with success, the retention in Afghanistan of the Bengal division of the army. In the middle of September, General Wilshire marched with the Bombay column, with orders, on his way to the Indus to pay a hostile visit to Kailat and punish its Khan for the disloyalty with which he had been charged, a commission which the British officer fulfilled with a skill and thoroughness that could be admired with less reservation had the aggression on the gallant Mehrab been less wanton. A month later, Keane started for India by the Khyber route, which Wade had opened without serious resistance, when in August and September he escorted through the passes Prince Timur, Shah Sujah's heir apparent. During the temporary absence of Cotton, who accompanied Keane, Knott had the command at Kandahar, Sail at and about Kabul, and the troops were quartered in those capitals, and in Jalalabad, Gunzi, Charikar, and Bamiyan. The Shah and the envoy wintered in the milder climate of Jalalabad, and Burns was in political charge of the capital and its vicinity. It was a prophetic utterance that the accomplishment of our military succession would mark but the commencement of our real difficulties in Afghanistan. In theory and in name, Shah Sujah was an independent monarch. It was indeed only in virtue of his proving himself able to rule independently that he could justify his claim to rule at all. But that he was independent was a contradiction in terms, while British troops studied the country, and while the real powers of sovereignty were exercised by Macnaughton. Certain functions, it is true, the latter did permit the nominal monarch to exercise. While debarred from a voice in measures of external policy, and not allowed to sway the lines of conduct to be adopted toward independent or revolting tribes, the Shah was allowed to concern himself with the administration of justice, and in his hands were the settlement, collection, and appropriation of the revenue of those portions of the kingdom from which any revenue could be exacted. He was allowed to appoint as his minister of state the companion of his exile, old Mullah Shikor, who had lost both his memory and his ears, but who had sufficient faculty left to hate the English, to oppress the people, to be corrupt and venal beyond all conception, and to appoint subordinates as flagitious as himself. Quote, Bad ministers, wrote Burns, are in every government solid ground for unpopularity, and I doubt if ever a king had a worse set than has Shah Sujah. Unquote. The oppressed people appealed to the British functionaries, who remonstrated with the minister, and the minister punished the people for appealing to the British functionaries. The Shah was free to confer grants of land on his creatures, but when the holders resisted, he was unable to enforce his will, since he was not allowed to employ soldiers, and the odium of the forcible confiscation ultimately fell on Macnaughton, who alone had the ordering of expeditions, and who could not see the Shah belittled by non-fulfilment of his requisitions. Justice sold by venal judges, oppression and corruption rampant in every department of internal administration. It was no wonder that nobles and people alike resented the inflictions under whose sting they writhed. They were accustomed to a certain amount of oppression. Dost Muhammad had chastised them with whips, but Shah Sujah, whom the English had brought, was chastising them with scorpions, and they felt his yoke the more bitterly because, with the shrewd acuteness of the race, 
they recognized the really servile condition of this new king. They fretted too under the sharp bit of the British political agents who were strewn about the country in the execution of a miserable and futile policy, and whose lives, in a few instances, did not maintain the good name of their country. Dost Mohammed had maintained his sway by politic management of the chiefs and through them of the tribes. Macnaughton would have done well to impress on Shah Sujah the wisdom of pursuing the same tactics. There was, it was true, the alternative of destroying the power of the barons, but that policy involved a stubborn and doubtful struggle and prolonged occupation of the country by British troops in great strength. Macnaughton professed our occupation of Afghanistan to be temporary, yet he was clearly adventuring on the rash experiment of weakening the nobles when he set about the enlistment of local tribal levies, who, paid from the royal treasury and commanded by British officers, were expected to be staunch to the Shah and useful in curbing the powers of the chiefs. The latter, of course, were alienated and resentful, and the levies, imbued with the Afghan attribute of fickleness, proved for the most part undisciplined and faithless. The winter of 1839-40 to passed without much noteworthy incident. The winter climate of Afghanistan is severe, and the Afghan, in ordinary circumstances, is among the hibernating animals. But down in the Khyber, in October, the tribes gave some trouble. They were dissatisfied with the amount of annual blackmail paid them for the right of way through their passes. When the Shah was a fugitive thirty years previously, they had concealed and protected him, and mindful of their kindly services, he had promised them, unknown to Macnaughton, the augmentation of their subsidy to the old scale from which it had gradually dwindled. Wade, returning from Kabul, did not bring them the assurances they expected, whereupon they rose and concentrated, and invested Ali Mujid, a fort which they regarded as the key of their gloomy defile. Mackeson, the Peshawar political officer, threw provisions and ammunition into Ali Mujid, but the force, on its return march, was attacked by the hillmen, the Sikhs being routed and the sepoys incurring loss of men and transport. The emboldened Khyberese now turned on Ali Majid in earnest, but the garrison was strengthened and the place was held, until a couple of regiments marched down from Jalalabad and were preparing to attack the hillmen, when it was announced that Mackeson had made a compact with the chiefs for the payment of an annual subsidy which they considered adequate. Afghanistan fifty years ago, and the same is in a measure true of it today, was rather a bundle of provinces some of which owned scarcely a nominal allegiance to the ruler in Kabul than a concrete state. Herat and Kandahar were wholly independent, the Gilzai tribes inhabiting the wild tracks from the Suleiman ranges westward beyond the road through Gunzi, between Kandahar and Kabul, and northward into the rugged country between Kabul and Jalalabad, acknowledged no other authority than that of their own chiefs. The Gilzais are agriculturalists, shepherds and robbers they are constantly engaged in internal feuds they are jealous of their wild independence and through the centuries have abated little of their untamed ferocity they had rejected macnaughton's advances and had attacked shah sujah's camp 
on the day before the fall of Ganzee. Outram, in reprisal, had promptly raided part of their country. Later the winter had restrained them from activity, but they broke out again in the spring. In May, Captain Anderson, marching from Kandahar with a mixed force about 1,200 strong, was offered battle near Jazi in the Turnuk by some 2,000 Gilzai horse and foot. Anderson's guns told heavily among the Gilzai horsemen, who, impatient of the fire, made a spirited dash on his left flank. Grape and musketry checked them, but they rallied and twice charged home on the bayonets before they withdrew, leaving two hundred of their number dead on the ground. Not sent a detachment to occupy the fortress of Kilat-e-Gilzai between Kandahar and Gunzi, thus rendering the communications more secure. And later Macnaughton bribed the chiefs, by an annual subsidy of £600, to abstain from infesting the highways. The terms were cheap, for the Gilzai tribes mustered some 40,000 fighting men. Shah Suja and the envoy returned from Jalalabad to Kabul in April 1840. A couple of regiments had wintered not uncomfortably in the Bala Hissar. That fortress was then the key of Kabul, and while our troops remained in Afghanistan, it should not have been left ungarrisoned a single hour. The soldiers did their best to impress on Macnaughton the all-importance of the position, but the Shah objected to its continued occupation, and Macnaughton weakly yielded. Cotton, who had returned to the chief military command in Afghanistan, made no remonstrance. The Balahisar was evacuated, and the troops were quartered in cantonments built in an utterly defenceless position on the plain north of Kabul, a position whose environs were cumbered with walled gardens, and commanded by adjacent high ground and by native forts, which were neither demolished nor occupied. The troops, now in permanent and regularly constructed quarters, ceased to be an expeditionary force, and became substantially an army of occupation. The officers sent for their wives to inhabit with them the bungalows in which they had settled down. Lady Macnaughton, in the spacious mission residence which stood apart in its own grounds, presided over the society of the cantonments, which had all the cheery surroundings of the half-settled, half-nomadic life of our military people in the east. There were the coffee-house after the morning ride, the gathering round the bandstand in the evening, the impromptu dance, and the burakana occasionally in the larger houses. A race-course had been laid out, and there were sky-races and more formal meetings. And so, quote, as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, and marrying and giving in marriage, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Unquote. Macnaughton engaged himself in a welter of internal and external intrigue, his mood swinging from singular complacency to a disquietude that sometimes approached despondency. It had come to be forced on him, in spite of his intermittent optimism, that the government was a government of sentry-boxes, and that Afghanistan was not governed so much as garrisoned. The utter failure of the winter march attempted by Perovsky's Russian column across the frozen steppes on Kiva was a relief to him, but the state of affairs in Herat was a constant trouble and anxiety. Major Todd had been sent there as political agent, 
to make a treaty with Shah Kamran, and to superintend the repair and improvement of the fortifications of the city. Kamran was plenteously subsidised. He took Macnaghten's lax, but furtively maintained close relations with Persia. Detecting the double dealing, Macnaghten urged on Lord Auckland the annexation of Herat to Shah Sujah's dominions, but was instructed to condone Cameron's duplicity and try to bribe him higher. Cameron by no means objected to this policy, and while continuing his intrigues with Persia, cheerfully accepted the money, arms and ammunition which Macnaghten supplied him with so profusely as to cause remonstrance on the part of the financial authorities in Calcutta. The commander-in-chief was strong enough to counteract the pressure which Macnaghten brought to bear on Lord Auckland in favour of an expedition against Herat, which his lordship at length finally negatived, to the great disgust of the envoy, who wrote of the conduct of his chief as, quote, drivelling beyond contempt, and sighed for a Wellesley or a Hastings, unquote. The ultimate result of Macnaghten's negotiations with Shah Kamran was Major Todd's withdrawal from Herat. Todd had suspended the monthly subsidy, to the great wrath of Kamran's rapacious and treacherous minister, Yar Muhammad, who made a peremptory demand for increased advances, and refused Todd's stipulation that a British force should be admitted into Herat. Todd's action in quitting Herat was severely censured by his superiors, and he was relegated to regimental duty. Perhaps he acted somewhat rashly, but he had not been kept well informed. For instance, he had been unaware that Persia had become our friend, and had engaged to cease relations with Shah Kamran, an important arrangement of which he certainly should have been cognizant. Macnaghten had squandered more gold on Herat than the free symbol of the principality was worth, and to no purpose. He left that state just as he found it, treacherous, insolent, greedy, and independent. The precariousness of the long lines of communication between British India and the army in Afghanistan, a source of danger which from the first had disquieted cautious soldiers, was making itself seriously felt and constituted for Macnaughton another cause of solicitude. Old Runjeet Singh, a faithful if not disinterested ally, had died on June 27, 1839, the day on which Keane marched out from Kandahar. The breath was scarcely out of the old reprobate when the Punjab began to drift into anarchy. So far as the Sikh share in it was concerned, the tripartite treaty threatened to become a dead letter. The Lahore Durbar had not adequately fulfilled the undertaking to support Prince Timur's advance by the Khyber, nor was it duly regarding the obligation to maintain a force on the Peshawar frontier of the Punjab. But those things were trivial in comparison with the growing reluctance manifested freely to accord our troops and convoys permission to traverse the Punjab on the march to and from Kabul. The Anglo-Indian government sent Mr. Clark to Lahore to settle the question as to the thoroughfare. He had instructions to be firm, and the Sikhs did not challenge Mr. Clark's stipulation that the Anglo-Indian government must have unmolested right-of-way through the Punjab while he undertook to restrict the use of it as much as possible. This arrangement by no means satisfied the exacting Macnaughton, and he continued to worry himself by foreseeing all sorts of troublous contingencies 
unless measures were adopted for macadamizing the road through the Punjab. The summer of 1840 did not pass without serious interruptions to the British communications between Kandahar and the Indus, nor without unexpected and ominous disasters before they were restored. General Wilshire, with the returning Bombay column, had in the previous November stormed Mehrab Khan's ill-manned and worse-armed fort of Kelat, and the Khan, disdaining to yield, had fallen in the hopeless struggle. His son Nusir Khan had been put aside in favour of a collateral pretender and became an active and dangerous malcontent. All northern Baluchistan fell into a state of anarchy. A detachment of sepoys escorting supplies was cut to pieces in one of the passes. Quetta was attacked with great resolution by Nusir Khan, but was opportunely relieved by a force sent from another post. Nusir made himself master of Kelat and there fell into his cruel hands Lieutenant Loveday, the British political officer stationed there, whom he treated with great barbarity and finally murdered. A British detachment under Colonel Cliborne was defeated by the Baluchis with heavy loss and compelled to retreat. Nusir Khan, descending into the low country of Kutch, assaulted the important post of Dadur, but was repulsed, and taking refuge in the hills, was routed by Colonel Marshall with a force from Kotri, whereupon he became a skulking fugitive. Knott marched down from Kandahar with a strong force, occupied Kelat, and fully re-established communications with the line of the Indus, while fresh troops moved forward into Upper Sindhi, and thence gradually advancing to Quetta and Kandahar, materially strengthened the British position in southern Afghanistan. Dost Mohammed, after his flight from Kabul in 1839, had soon left the hospitable refuge afforded him in Kaloum, a territory west of the Hindu Kush, beyond Bamiyan, and had gone to Bukhara on the treacherous invitation of its emir, who threw him into captivity. The Dost's family remained at Kaloum, in the charge of his brother Jubar Khan. The advance of British forces beyond Bamiyan to Sagan and Bajgah induced that Sirdar to commit himself and the ladies to British protection. Dr. Lord, Macnaughton's political officer in the Bamiyan district, was a rash, although well-meaning man. The errors he had committed since the opening of spring had occasioned disasters to the troops whose dispositions he controlled, and had incited the neighbouring hill tribes to active disaffection. In July, Dost Mohammed made his escape from Bukhara, hurried to Kaloum, found its ruler and the tribes full of zeal for his cause, and rapidly grew in strength. Lord found it was time to call in his advance posts and concentrate at Bamiyan, losing in the operation an Afghan regiment which deserted to the dust. Macnaughton reinforced Bamiyan and sent Colonel Denny to command there. On September 18th, Denny moved out with two guns and 800 men against the Dost advance parties raiding in an adjacent valley. Those detachments driven back, Denny suddenly found himself opposed to the irregular mass of Oosburg horse and foot which constituted the army of the Dost. Mackenzie's cannon fire shook the undisciplined horde, the infantry pressed into close quarters, and soon the nondescript host of the Dost was in panic flight, with Denny's cavalry in eager pursuit. The Dost escaped with difficulty, 
with the loss of his entire personal equipment. He was once more a fugitive, and the Wali of Kaloum promptly submitted himself to the victors, and pledged himself to aid and harbour the broken chief no more. Macnaughton had been a prey to apprehension while the Doss's attitude was threatening. He was now in a glow of joy and hope. But the envoy's elation was short-lived. Dost Mohammed was yet to cause him much solicitude. Defeated in Bamiyan, he was ready for another attempt in the Kohistan country to the north of Kabul. Disaffection was rife everywhere throughout the kingdom, but it was perhaps most rife in the Kohistan, which was seething with intrigues in favour of Dost Mohammed, while the local chiefs were intensely exasperated by the exactions of the Shah's revenue collectors. Macnaughton summoned the chiefs to Kabul. They came, they did homage to the Shah, and swore allegiance to him. They went away from the capital, pledging each other to his overthrow, and jeering at the scantiness of the force they had seen at Kabul. Intercepted letters disclosed their schemes, and in the end of September, Sale, with a considerable force, marched out to chastise the disaffected Kohistanis. The fort of Tutundara fell without resistance. Julga, however, the next fort assailed, stubbornly held out, and officers and men fell in the unsuccessful attempt to storm it. In three weeks Sale marched to and fro through the Kohistan, pursuing will-o'-the-wisp rumours as to the whereabouts of the Dost, destroying forts on the course of his weary pilgrimage, and subjected occasionally to night attacks. Meanwhile, in the belief that Dost Mohammed was close to Kabul, and mournfully conscious that the capital and surrounding country were ripe for a rising, Macnaughton had relapsed into nervousness, and was a prey to gloomy forebodings. The troops at Bamiyan were urgently recalled. Cannon were mounted on the Balahisar to overawe the city. The concentration of the troops in the fortress was under consideration, and men were talking of preparing for a siege. How Macnaughton's English nature was undergoing deterioration under the strain of events is shown by his writing of the Dost. Quote, Would it be justifiable to set a price on this fellow's head? Unquote. How his perceptions were warped was further evinced by his talking of quote, showing no mercy to the man who has been the author of all the evil now distracting the country, unquote. and by his complaining of Sale and Burns that, quote, with two thousand good infantry, they are sitting down before a fortified place and are afraid to attack it. Unquote. Learning that for certain the Dost had crossed the Hindu Kush from Nijrao into the Kohistan, Sale, who had been reinforced, sent out reconnaissances which ascertained that he was in the Purwandura Valley, stretching down from the Hindu Kush to the Gorabund River, and the British force marched thither on 2nd November. As the village was neared, the Dost's people were seen evacuating it and the adjacent forts and making for the hills. Sale's cavalry was some distance in advance of the infantry of the advance guard, but time was precious. Anderson's horse went to the left to cut off retreat down the Gorbon Valley. Fraser took his two squadrons of Bengal cavalry to the right, advanced along the foothills, and gained the head of the valley. He was too late to intercept a small body of Afghan horsemen who were already climbing the upland, but badly mounted as the latter were, he could pursue them with effect. 
but it seems that the Afghans preferred to fight rather than be pursued. The Dost himself was in command of the little party, and the Dost was a man whose nature was to fight, not to run. He wheeled his handful so that his horsemen faced Fraser's troop down there below them. Then the Dost pointed to his banner, bared his head, called on his supporters in the name of God and the Prophet to follow him against the unbelievers, and led them down the slope. Fraser had formed up his troopers when recall orders reached him. Joyous that the situation entitled him to disobey them, he gave instead the word to charge. As the Afghans came down at no great pace, they fired occasionally, either because of the bullets, or because of an access of pusillanimity. Fraser's troops broke and fled ignominiously. The British gentlemen charged home unsupported. Broadfoot, Crispin, and Lord were slain. Ponsonby, severely wounded and his reins cut, was carried out of the melee by his charger. Fraser, covered with blood and wounds, broke through his assailants and brought to sale his report of the disgrace of his troopers. After a sharp pursuit of the poltroons, the Dost and his followers leisurely quitted the field. Burns wrote to the envoy. He was a soldier, but he was also a political, and political employ seemed often in Afghanistan to deteriorate the attribute of soldierhood. That there was no alternative for the force but to fall back on Kabul, and entreated Macnaughton to order immediate concentration of all the troops. This letter Macnaughton received the day after the disaster in the Kohistan, when he was taking his afternoon ride in the Kabul plain. His heart must have been very heavy as he rode, when suddenly a horseman galloped up to him and announced that the emir was approaching. What emir? asked Macnaughton. Dost Mohammed Khan was the reply, and sure enough, there was the Dost close at hand. Dismounting, this Afghan prince and gentleman saluted the envoy and offered him his sword, which Macnaughton declined to take. Dost and the envoy rode into Kabul together, and such was the impression the former made on the latter that Macnaughton, who a month before had permitted himself to think of putting a price on the fellow's head, begged now of the Governor-General, that the Dost be treated more handsomely than was Shah Suja, who had no claim on us, unquote. and then followed a strange confession for the man to make who made the tripartite treaty and approved the Simla Manifesto. Quote, we had no hand in depriving the Shah of his kingdom, whereas we ejected the Dost, who never offended us, in support of our policy, of which he was the victim. Unquote. Durand regards Dost Mohammed's surrender as quote, evincing a strange pusillanimity. Unquote. This opprobrious judgment appears unjustified. No doubt he was weary of the fugitive life he had been leading, but to pronounce him afraid that the Kohistanis or any other Afghans would betray him is to ignore the fact that he had been for months among people who might, any hour of any day, have betrayed him if they had chosen. Nobler motives than those ascribed to him by Durand may be supposed to have actuated a man of his simple and lofty nature. He had given the arbitrament of war a trial, and had realised that in that way he could make no head against us. He might indeed have continued the futile struggle, 
but he was the sort of man to recognize the selfishness of that persistency which would involve ruin and death to the devoted people who would not desert his cause while he claimed to have a cause when historians write of afghan treachery and guile it seems to have escaped their perception that afghan treachery was but a phase of afghan patriotism of an unscrupulous character doubtless according to our notions but nevertheless practical in its methods and not wholly unsuccessful in its results it may have been a higher and purer patriotism that moved dost mohammed to cease by his surrender from being an obstacle to the tranquillization of the country of which he had been the ruler End of chapter 3